0: Uh, But we're now um, continuing in a series through the life of David, so we're in the Old Testament. And for many of us, we said last week, the Old Testament is a bit intimidating because we don't always know what to do with it. Um, Because when we read through a person's story and the totality of their life, we realize that we get a lot of mixed information, and, and, and David just exemplifies this. When we look at his life, he had a lot of good moments and he had a lot of bad moments, And his good moments are really, really good. And his bad moments are really, really bad. And the good moments don't cancel out the bad, and the bad moments don't cancel out the good. They're both there for us to look at and reflect on and say, wow, how did he at times have that kind of courage and faith? And then other times, how did he have that lack of faith and lack of courage and that disobedience that he had? So when we look at his life in the totality of it, we realize that he's not perfect and none of us are perfect. And what he experienced, in many ways, we will. We have good days and bad days. I was able to have a lunch this week with someone who wasn't here last week as we kicked off the series, but he just said, oh, David, great soldier, horrible father, I can relate to him. He gives me hope that there's hope for people like me. And it was, yeah, that's one of the goals is to look at someone who is flawed and yet faithful to realize that God isn't looking at us and hoping that we'll become perfect. He knows exactly our weaknesses. He knows our limitations. He knows all of our struggles and all of our temptations. And he's willing to use us in spite of all those things. And he loves us in spite of all of those things things. And so when we go to David's life, we, we learn that. But if you uh, aren't here for the whole series, you know you might come in on one of the messages when we're looking at the better parts of David's life. Or you might come in when we're only looking at the, uh, some, of, some of his worst moments. Um, but even if you can't be with us for this series, I encourage you to look at his whole life. And then also look later as one would come, his name is Jesus, who was happy to be referred to as the son of David, who would then change and transform the way we look at everyone in the world, not just David. But now I invite you to take a Bible and to open it. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew, you'll find it on page 239. First Samuel chapter 17, we're at the very, very earliest stages of David's life. And these are some of his better moments. We're going to read probably his most famous story of of heroism and courage on behalf of God and his people. But it's a very, very long chapter, so we're going to to break up the reading. And one of our goals also in this series, uh, David is referred to as someone after the Lord's own heart and in 1st and 2nd Samuel we get a lot of the events of David's life but it's actually in the Psalms that we get even a better picture of the heart of this man. So each week we're going to look at uh, an event in David's life and also a psalm from David that get, kind of lets us in on his thoughts as he reflected on the events of his life, just like you would love to have the journal of a family member of yours who's gone on. And wow, what could you learn about a family member if you had access to their journal? With David, we get that. We not only get tons of stories in First and Second Samuel, but we get many, many Psalms that are a reflection on the events of his life. So we'll be in 1 Samuel 17, and then Psalm 14. Okay, hopefully, you're there. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Azekah, in Ephes, Stamim, and Saul, and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Allah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And that's where we'll pause for a moment. So here at the beginning, the stage is set. The Philistines have come out to battle and the Philistine army and the Israelite army meet. They're both on a mountainside with only a valley between them. So they're close enough that they can address each other, they can see each other, but To engage in all-out battle, one of them or both of them have to choose to now go down into this valley. But they can see each other. And one of the first things that we see is that there is, in fact, in this world, real opposition. Our first point is just to recognize that in this world, there is real opposition. Sometimes we can think, well, there's believers and there's unbelievers. And so we define unbelievers as simply a lack of something. But there's also within believers a whole different subset of categories and in unbelievers a whole subset of categories. And with the Philistines, they didn't just not believe in Israel and the God of Israel, but they were actively opposed to the God of Israel. And they wanted to fight Israel. They were hostile, they were angry, they were violent, and they wanted war. And we still live in a world where there is real opposition. When we look on the globe and see different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages spoken, those aren't just differences, but many of those differences end up causing people to fight with one another, where one group isn't just different than another, but they hate that other group. They want to see the end of that other group. And there is opposition throughout this world. It still exists. That some people in their disbelief are not indifferent about it. They're passionate about it. And they are opposed to God. You don't even have just been paying partial attention to the news in the last several weeks to know that there, are, there is real opposition out there. And there are people who will take their convictions and their beliefs to their logical conclusion and they will make war with Christians. Christians. And actually, it's been now for almost a decade where you would not want to have been a Christian almost anywhere in the Middle East. There's opposition that's being faced by believers in places all throughout our day. It is real. It is serious. We sometimes, because most of our choices are between types of entertainment struggle to think that there are people out there that make choices about life and death in that way and who they want to fight that day because we're so secure most of the time in our own settings that the choices that confront us on a regular basis are mostly choices of convenience and choices of luxury. But for the majority of the world, they make choices in very, very different terms. They think in terms of survival. They think in terms of revenge. And there is real opposition this very weak. Uh, two things were drawn up in the news. One is a nation, as a world community, the events of September 11th were re- remembered on its 13th anniversary. But then locally, the news broke that a school shooter locally in Chardon, who was in prison outside of Toledo, had escaped prison. And when the first couple of news stories came out, it actually was using his full name, which the news had never done before, so that we didn't even recognize who they were referring to. Just so-and-so broke out of prison. But then when they abbreviate it the way they had abbreviated when the school shooting had happened, it was, oh my goodness, that guy escaped from prison. And so on Friday, the entire school system, even though he was captured again, was closed and simply open with guidance counselors and principals to speak with students for counseling. Because for a moment, there was that sense that an enemy is loose. Someone who was cold-heartedly set on the destruction of other people for a moment was loose. And there are people like that in this world. The opposition is real. Jesus himself, who made the absolutely radical and counterintuitive claim that we're supposed to love our enemies, in saying that, he was acknowledging that there are enemies. There are enemies in this world. There are enemies to your life and to mine. They exist. It's not superficial. It's not just made up. It's not just a a conspiracy theory. When he told his followers to love your enemies, he was implicitly acknowledging to, to them that there will be opposition that they face. It'll be real. It'll be serious. Some of them will suffer in ways that others won't. Sometimes if we have enough good days in a row, we just tend to forget that. That there is a battle that rages all around us and that we need as much as possible to take our faith seriously because if we want our faith to manifest itself as strong in conflict, we have to always realize that it's there, it's present, that we could be called at any moment to sacrifice for our faith. Here the Philistines gathered together for battle, and then we see these events unfold. We don't know when our enemies will manifest themselves, but none of us will get through life on this earth without opposition, without difficulty. It's real. They understood that. They knew that. So here they are gathered on two sides. This opposition is real, but there's also, so for the Philistines, there's this real opposition towards God and towards the people of Israel But within the people of Israel, there's a practical atheism. So there's this passionate disbelief, but in the people of Israel, there's this practical atheism because here they are now assembled at a potential battle with each other. Goliath comes out and offers a proposition that instead of all of them going to battle with each other, that he would come as a representative of the the entire nation and that Israel can send a representative of their entire nation and just the two of them will fight. But the, con- the, the consequences of that fight will affect everyone. So if Goliath loses, all the Philistines lose. If the representative of Israel loses, all of Israel loses. But it's actually a reasonable way of battle. It's saying in- instead of multiple, multiple unnecessary deaths, let's have representatives from each group come out and fight. And so he comes and he makes this offer. And then it says that it completely frightened Saul and all Israel. They were dismayed and greatly afraid in verse 11. Then we find out that David, who's not part of this battle, he's not in the army yet, his three older brothers are. David's responsible to send food from his father to his other brothers. And then he has to come back and feed the sheep. And he's going back and forth. And we find out at the end of verse 16 that this has now gone on for 40 days. So for 40 days, this challenge is continuing to be offered. And there's no one from the nation of Israel who's willing to stand up against this challenge. So though they, if if you gave them a theological exam, you would say, Do you believe in God? They would say, I do believe in God. Do you believe in him enough to go take this challenge? Um, I don't. Okay, so you're acting as if you don't believe in him. You're practically an atheist because though you believe in him, you don't believe in him enough that he's affecting your decisions. You're not willing to follow his, his orders. So actually, whether you believe him or not, your behavior would be the same at this point in time, wouldn't it? Well, actually, I guess it would because I'm unwilling to do what he's asking me to do. So they're practically atheists. So even though they're believers, they might be able to recite you parts of the Torah, they might be able to tell you bits of the history of Israel. In these 40 days, the king's not willing to go, and none of his soldiers are willing to go. And this is the very situation in which you could have imagined that made Israel want a king in the first place. They wanted a king, because the opposition was real, because these battles were going to be fought, and there's the king unwilling to fight. We get a psalm that kind of describes this situation, this 40-day period, quite well. It's Psalm 14. So we'll go to Psalm 14, then we'll be back in 1 Samuel 17. It starts in the voice, if you will, of the Philistines. But it's not very long before everyone is condemned. Psalm 14, page 453. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they Are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. So here the psalmist, a psalm of David looks out and says, there are those who look and say, there is no God. And they live in all of the disobedience that their hearts and minds can imagine. They do whatever they want to whoever they want, whenever they want. They're corrupt. Their deeds are abominable. And though there's Some in that category, it says in a much more universal way that the Lord looks down on all the children of men and they don't seek after God. They've turned aside. So there's those who are really opposed to God and then there are those who are just practically indifferent about him and unwilling to do the things that he says. And so then at the end, it just becomes this prayer, God be with the generation of the righteous There are those who would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Fascinating study is how righteous and poor in this psalm are interchangeable terms. But he's looking down, and he's saying there are very, very few, very, very few who are righteous, who are seeking God's face. And so it ends with this prayer, please let that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That's where we are in 1 Samuel 17. There's the enemies on one side and there's the indifference and the cowardness on the other side. But that's not where this story ends, praise God. Someone else enters into this story and we'll begin reading back again in verse 17. 1 Samuel 17, 17. And Jesse said to David, his son... Take for your brothers an epheth of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander, to their thousand. see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard that he spoke to the men, and his anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. I just love that phrase. He's been killing people longer than you've been alive. (laughs) is the contrast. You're a youth, and he's a warrior. Verse 35, or verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and closed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I can't go with these. I've not tested them. And so David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, his, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That's where we'll stop. So with this real opposition, with this practical atheism, there is one who has faithful ambition. And that's David. As he comes and he's just doing his job, he's delivering the food that his father had asked him to deliver to his brothers. Things start to get loud. The the trumpets are sounding. There's a sense that a battle is about to begin. And so he just leaves that behind, wants to get to the front lines to see what's going on. And he hears The very same thing that had been spoken for 40 days in Israel, the charges of Goliath, his challenge to have a representative battle that affected both nations. But when he heard it, he went further. Everyone else, they they cowered in fear, they wanted nothing to do with it and they were just waiting for someone else to come. When David heard it, he asked more questions. What will happen to the person who does this? And he overheard I mean you'll be taken care of, you'll have a future wife, your father will be taken I mean, if if somebody's willing to do this, we'll we'll give you lots of stuff if you're willing to do it. Then his eldest brother is offended because he's willing to speak up and ask these questions. And it's interesting whenever someone is willing to have ambition and and full of faith in God and willing to do something when no one else is, how some of those very people who should be willing to do it but aren't actually get angry and get jealous. Because one of the most convicting things in our lives is when we see someone who we think of as lesser than us actually do much more than us in the faith. When we see someone who we think they should be angry at God, they should be whatever, and then they have more joy than we do. Well, they don't have anywhere near as much money as I do, but man, they give more than I do. There's something about observing that, if we ever do observe it, that is convicting to us because it takes away our excuses. And then we can't really justify our inactivity. And so his brother's angry at him because he's speaking up. And then Goliath is angry at him because he doesn't seem to be any kind of a real challenge. (laughs) like, come on, I've been waiting for 40 days. I thought in 40 days, maybe you were filtering this whole thing out and I was gonna have somebody who was really worth a battle, but it seems like in 40 days, what I get is the leftovers from Israel. And so this battle takes place, but he has ambition. They are thinking initially in their own terms and so Saul says, okay, if you're gonna go, here's my armor, here's my sword, here's my equipment. And David says, no. I can't fight this battle on these terms. He's, he's taller than me. He's stronger than me. His sword is bigger than me. If I fight on those terms, I will lose. I can't fight on those terms. And so David takes all of that. He takes stones. And what he knows from his experience as a shepherd, as someone who had to protect sheep out in the wilderness against snakes and lions and bears and any kind of another animal that would come and potentially take his sheep. And David wins this battle. He takes his sling and he sends the stone. And on his first try, he knocks Goliath in the head and he does everything that he said he would do. But even before he did it, he made clear to everyone in Israel and even to Goliath himself that it was not because of his superior skill or his willingness to use unconventional means It is his conviction in verse 47 that the battle is the Lord's, that he can draw on strength from someone else who is bigger than Goliath, who is stronger, whose ways are better. And if he's just willing to follow that God, then it's not, oh, David, what a great person you are. But it is that everyone in watching this would say, well, clearly it wasn't about David. Only God could have done this. Only God could have brought victory in this situation. Those two people side by side, there's not even a point in taking bets. We know who's gonna win. Only God could bring about this victory. So even in this situation where David has this faithful ambition, his ambition is to follow God, to not trust himself, to trust in the Lord, to fight the battle for him. And then what follows is total salvation. You can read the end of the chapter to see, but they... The the terms had been set. If David wins, then all of the Philistines lose. If Goliath would have won, then all of Israel would have lost. This was a representative battle. And so after David wins and victory happens, the nation then goes to the other side and all the Philistines run and they can basically collect without conflict now all of the leftovers of their goods and their food and their armor because they took off running. And on this day, in this battle, there was total victory. And one of the ways we can read this story is to look at this situation and when we see Goliath and his hostile opposition and his willingness to harm people and to be violent, and then we look at all of Israel and we see their lack of faith. You know, when we're trying to place ourselves in the story, we really want to say, man, I, I wish in those moments that I could be like David. And that I could be the person who has courage and is willing to go out and fight the battle. And there's a sense in which it's fine to think that and it's good to desire for ourselves that we need to do that. But when we go to the New Testament, what we learn is that there is this battle going on and we do need a representative. And in fact, we are much more like the people of Israel than we think. And we need someone who can go ahead of us and who can fight this battle for us. And there was someone who was willing to do that. He was willing to be called the son of David. His name was Jesus. And he said, I will take on the consequences and my victory would be their victory. My triumph, their triumph. And that's what we need. Someone who is more faithful than we are, who has more ambition than we are, who is willing to do what we are unwilling to do. But there's even something different in Jesus' story because Jesus is not just another David. He didn't come and he was a better military commander. There's the people of Israel and there's the people of the Philistines. And what Jesus desires is a victory in which both of them can be set free. The one who told us to love our enemies chooses to fight the battle in such a way that his, his enemies at the end could actually become his friends. So unlike David, for Jesus it was not, I just need to go and destroy the enemy and then they'll all be gone. But for Jesus, the choice before him was, am I willing to go and die for my enemy? Am I willing to be the one who dies so that they all stop fighting each other? so that not just Israel could be saved, but that the Gentiles could be saved, so that they could become then, in what is called the body of Christ, actually one family, reconciled, restored, no more hostility between them, because someone was willing to die so that all of them could be set free. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter five. If you still have a Bible open, you can turn and see what Paul says in Romans chapter five about the death of Christ, on page 942. In verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The battle was the Lord's. There were people who were opposed to him and there were people who were indifferent to him. But he was willing to die for all of them. That through his death, they could find peace with him and then find peace with each other. In conclusion, I'd like to go, as we plan to do each week, as we read the story and as we read a psalm, to one other psalm that we'll read together. So I'll read it from here, but you can stand and it'll be projected on the screen before you. But this is Psalm 124, another psalm of David. On the other side of victory... And in conclusion, we'll read these words together. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept over us the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Your willingness to love us and in loving us to fight for us and in loving us to make us your enemies into your friends. We do stand here and we say that if it's not for you, we would be defeated. We would be overcome. Without a future, without a hope. And so we we thank you for giving us not only salvation, but much more life, an abundant life to trust in you and to believe that, yes, all of your promises find their yes and their amen in your son. We thank you that in his death and in his burial and resurrection that we can have the victory that he secured for us that our salvation is not in part, but in whole. Father, I just pray this morning for anyone who keeps trying to fight their battles in their own strength, that this would be a day of surrender for them, that they would cast all of their cares and all of their concerns and all of their sins upon you and to trust you to fight for them. In your son's name we pray, amen.